The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word once again. Day in and day out, in season and out of season, it nourishes us like a stream in the desert. And we thank you, Lord. We pray that by your mercy that you would bloom in us the seeds that you have already planted, the seeds of faith, Lord God. And we pray that the, uh, uh, not just for the, the, um, the strength of our faith, but for the object of our faith, that, that our hearts would, would put our full trust in, uh, in your mercy and your kindness, not on our own merit, Lord, and not in our own achievement or status, but, but in your grace and your kindness to us. Let us respond to that grace with faith and with vigor and with, uh, to bear witness uh, to your grace and mercy as gracious and merciful people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so um, my, my microphone is, uh, my, my technician is working diligently. Um, so... No, not on, not on yet. But, but, um, but we'll we'll see. Uh, hopefully, you can hear me. Uh, okay. So we're in the um, the last part of of chapter eleven. There we are. Yeah. yeah all right. Just read the sign on the outlet plate that says "Don't use the bottom outlet." Well, that's gonna be my fault. Um, <laughs> well, I plugged it in. All right. So. Um, I mean, it was probably Trent. Um, the, uh, so last week we talked about John the Baptist a lot. We talked about uh, John the Baptist's doubts uh, that Jesus, um, because Jesus wasn't coming through like he expected, uh, he was in jail. And we, I thought we had a really good and uh, enlightening, invigorating discussion around that. Um, and, and so, you know, for Jesus, it wasn't so much the shared authority with John it, um, uh, or like conferred authority upon him like he did the rest of the disciples, but he's, it's more like he's, he's lifting up this imprisoned prophet that has, um, has been the one to, to, uh, to prepare the way. And, and Jesus is lifting him up. He's validating his authority as one who was to prepare the way, because some people may have had some, some doubts about that in retrospect, given the fact that, that John was in prison. I mean, we've talked about before that a lot of the mindset of the day was, um, was that if something bad happened to you, that was the, bad happened to you, that was, that was the judgment of God, and Jesus is trying to alleviate his hearers uh, from that sentiment. It's another sense, I think, in which the authority of John has been transferred uh, to Jesus. Uh, the center of the Spirit's work in salvation history has shifted from John as the one who would prepare the way uh, to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who's uh, going to take away the sin of the world. So what's interesting, uh, as we approach today's text, first we had John's estimation of Jesus. Right? This is not what I expected. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we, should we be waiting on somebody else? And then we have Jesus' estimation of John, which is to say, no one greater, uh, no one who has been born of a woman is greater than John, which is, you know, like we said, most people have been born of women, so uh, that was, that's a pretty lofty. A lofty statement. 
for him to say. Uh, and, and in fact, he didn't just stop there, but he said that if you can believe it, he is actually the one who's in the spirit and the power of Elijah, which is directly from Malachi and Malachi's prophecy. So we had John's estimation of Jesus and Jesus' estimation of John, but now Jesus um, is giving us the estimation that the crowds are holding for both, John and for Jesus. They both had followers, but it seems that the we do a lot of sort of hyping up how much uh, notoriety Jesus had gotten. Uh, but but it seems from this at least that that these even his followers, as, as many as they were, that they were a minority, because um, uh, even in the place places where Jesus has done the miracles, the the center of Jesus' ministry. They get woes pronounced upon them uh, as we go through this text. So, so we've had um, John's estimation of Jesus, Jesus' estimation of John, and now Jesus is recounting to us the estimation of the crowds, the, the crowds have for both. And he says this, What shall I compare to this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, whenever Matthew uses the words, uh, has on the words of Jesus, um, the lips of Jesus, let me try that sentence again. Whenever Matthew puts... On the lips of Jesus, the word generation, it is never positive. Uh, often he'll say this worthless generation, or this useless generation, faithless generation, something like that. It's just this generation. But still, um, there's no clarifying adjective, but what he's saying is they can't be pleased. I've struggled with this passage a lot. For a long time I read this passage and just didn't understand what he was talking about. You might be in that place. But this is what he's saying, that, that they can't be pleased. They're like children who aren't happy with anything, and they're critical of everything. So, if you can imagine, it's like if this, if you say, all right, my child, we're going to a wedding today. The child goes, oh, I don't want to go to it. That is the worst. Or the next day, you might say, well, we're going to a you know, really sad thing. We're going to a funeral today. Oh, I don't want that. Sounds boring. I'm like, you know, just what a, what a child might say. Maybe I'm just working out my own stuff here. But I, uh, um, that is, uh, you can imagine a child isn't going to really want to. You now, some might want to go to a wedding and a party, but essentially, that's what Jesus is referencing um, in in this little parable. That um, that. You, you, we offer you a party and you're not happy. We offer you a dirge and you're not happy. Um, who's who's the one singing the dirge? John the Baptist, right? He's the ascetic. He, you know, he eats locusts and honey and wears wears camel hair and and you know sleeps on a on the dusty ground and and just he's just this sort of weird wild man uh, in the wilderness calling his people to fast and to repentance. And Jesus is the one singing the. The wedding song. He's the bridegroom. He's the one who's uh, celebrating, and uh, and it's really wonderful, right? And, and and yet they say that he is, um, 
that he that he is has a uh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He he eats and drinks, not like the the great prophet. You know, like so. It's um they can't be pleased with anything. And um. And and so. Jesus, um, just by way of me to say this, Jesus apparently would drink wine, and, and um, not that you should, uh, but but we should, you know. I don't. Not many of us would say that we should. That nobody should drink alcohol, and at least in ours. But if you ever, if you ever have to have that conversation with someone who says, "Well, alcohol, alcohol's bad," or something like that, nobody should drink alcohol or shouldn't drink alcohol. Uh, you know, that's that's a thing. But Jesus probably did, or they wouldn't have called him a drunkard. Um, but either way, uh, Jesus just point is pointing out that it doesn't really matter. It's, it, the, it's not the content of what they're saying. It's the, it's the heart, right? It's the spiritual nature because they can't be pleased with anything except for themselves. Some people just aren't happy unless they're upset. You know, you, um, I mean, you nobody here, but but there are you know there are people like that, and and so. Um, we won't name names. Um, we don't want to be like that, right? We don't want to be those people that can't be happy with anything or aren't happy unless we're upset. I mean, we want to, we want to be joyful. And we want to hear the words of truth and respond in, in, uh, appropriately. And so he turns from speaking about um, the people, their estimation of, of John and Jesus, and he, and he turns and begins to talk about Specific cities in the Galilee region, and um, and it's surprising, I think. And in particular, so he's still in the context of John the Baptist uh, and his followers coming to him. He begins to denounce the cities. I, I'm not sure where he is at this place, but you know that he has um, his city is, is Capernaum. And that, I mean, in fact, you go to Capernaum today and it says the, the city of Jesus or the town of, of Jesus uh, in big letters right right above the gates. And, um, and just a really, it's a fascinating archaeological uh, place. Chorazin was a little north, northwest uh, of Capernaum. Capernaum is right on the, on the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin's up the hill. Bethsaida is east of there, on the right at the mouth of the Jordan, as the Jordan empties into the Sea of Galilee. Not technically in Galilee; it was on the on the east side of the Jordan River, but it was just right there. You know, they were all they were all right there together. That was actually the city that Peter was from, and Andrew, and um, Philip, I think. And so, um, and so, it was just a uh, there. There's a lot of interactions you can imagine. People walked back and forth on foot all the time. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And again, you think, well, I thought they were repenting. There's all these you know, crowds of 5,000 and all this following him around, but apparently they were the minority. So, uh, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. 
For the mighty works, if the mighty works had done and you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, okay, so you're reading just in your you know your Lenten devotions, and you come to this passage. How much time do you spend with a passage like this? You move on, right? Why? Tell me. I mean, you move. Why? Why do you move on like that? I just want a more hopeful note. Well, and you're going to get one in the next paragraph, you know. But, um, but, but, why would Jesus put this here? That's that's. I mean, why not just go on to the nice stuff? What's the problem? To be aware that they were grumblers. They were always. They were never satisfied. Yes. Well, I mean, he wanted them to be aware, and to point out. They're, they were ripe for judgment, right? They, they had seen the mighty work. They can't, can't be pleased. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what mighty works have been done there, right? They're just not going to believe. Right? They're just, it's just, you know. I mean, if somebody, I've often wondered if what camp I would be in if Jesus were here today. Would I be suspicious of these miracles? Would I be like, that guy, he's just got some you know, David Copperfield, something, you know, like it's just, you know, it's, it's an act. It's a, if, he, if that guy walked in here um, and, and then pretended to be a cripple and he was just all, you know, on the, he's all getting the cut and, you know, just. That um, reminds me of a story yes. that was asked about young people. They said, if you're walking down the street, these were like teenagers or young people, walking down the beach and all of a sudden Jesus is walking towards you, what would you do? They said, we'd probably throw him over in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, so they said, yeah, we, if, if young people, uh, if Jesus was talk, walking towards the beach, we'd probably throw him in the ocean. I wonder if we'd even notice him. Or if we would at least try to keep our distance. We might see him every day and not know. Well, that's right. Or is he standing there with a the little cardboard sign at the intersection? <laughs> <laughs> Rick, man, that's that's that's, that's hitting below the belt, dude. I, I just, that's, um, but move on the next one. I saw a guy yesterday, but I couldn't read his sign. I'm like, well, if I can't read your sign, I'm just that's probably bad. I don't know, but then again. That's a whole other thing. Thanks for bringing that up. Appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> feeling the conviction of the spirit right here. So, what do you know about Tyre and Sidon? Anything? You would not go there, buddy. Probably better there than uh, than Sodom. Um, but so, Tyre and Sidon were cities that are on the um, on the Mediterranean coast. So, uh, up north north. Northwest, even of the um, Sea of Galilee, and and these are cities that all were known for their pagan uh, Baal worship, and were often the subject of of Old Testament prophetic judgment. And so that that they're often put together, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, they're in Phoenicia. Uh, we hear about the Syrophoenician woman. I think this is near where Jesus was when he, when the woman comes to him and says, um, "My daughter's sick." And he says, "Don't you know? It's not right to 
give the crumbs to the to the dogs. This he's he's in that region when when that happens. Um, Sodom. Now, what do you know about Sodom? Turned to salt. Turned to yeah. So Lot's wife turned to salt because they as they fled and she turned back and, and looked at it. Uh, that's where the um, the fire and brimstone came down upon it as judgment. That was a it's a it's a terrible story. I mean, like it's just you. Uh, in fact, uh, somebody who's very uh, I'm very close to thought, you know, I need to read the Bible, and they got to the story of Sodom. In in um, in Genesis and just shut the thing. Like I don't, this is ridiculous, you know. Like it just it is. What in the world do I make of you know Lot's uh, Lot giving his his daughters? Uh, uh, I mean it's just it's just a it's a strange, uh, terrible story. Uh, it was a place that that um, that was sort of the epitome of receiving God's judgment. And Jesus says, Capernaum, my new home, to adopted hometown, of course from Nazareth, but he's uh, my adopted hometown of Capernaum, it's going to be better for Sodom than it is for you, you suckers. Um, Sodom, was, kind of, Sodom was kind of Las Vegas before the Las Vegas, right? I mean, it's just the sin city. And, and, uh, and it's surprising, in fact, it's heartbreaking um, that so many had seen Jesus's uh, miracles and experienced his ministry, and yet uh, were uh, were hard-hearted. Uh, it does make me, like I said, wonder what I would have been. But it also makes us we we should wonder where we are now. Um, are we repentant now? Uh, it does seem that um, Jesus is talking about the character of Capernaum and Chorazin and. That's it, the character of the residents, or maybe the religious sensibilities. In other words, you're so terrible, Tyre and Sidon would have been better than you. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a little odd, it's odd, but I think it's because these were um, cities that should have known better. Uh, Sodom may not have had any capacity to know better uh, than to just um, fill itself up, but, uh, but it was... Um, uh, Capernaum and the ones that have seen the the works of Jesus should have known uh, to to turn because they had Jesus, uh, and it's heartbreaking, I think. Um, but it should give us pause, right? Are we merely religious? Because I, I don't. Th- I mean, I think there's no sense in which these were not these were unreligious towns. Uh, are we merely religious? But the religion doesn't have any lasting impact on how we live our lives and how we treat other people. Um, or, our, you know, the right one confession. Are our sins grievous unto us and the burden of them is intolerable? The... Interaction with Jesus. At least what I'm thinking about right now is is, is um, that when we come into face with face with Jesus, that we should repentance is the right uh, is the right posture. Like Isaiah, we remember when Isaiah saw the vision. In Isaiah six comes into he sees the train of the temple 
the, the train of the Lord in the temple fills the temple. The, the angels, the seraphim, are around the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is undone because he says, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, and I'll dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He comes into the presence of holiness and is immediately aware of his unholiness. He's, he's repentant. And, and the people who have been in the presence of holiness with Jesus, although he just looked like a man, I mean, he was a man, but they saw his works and they should have, they should have repented. It just gives me pause. Uh, do I just wink at my own sin? Or am I truly sorry and I humbly repent? I don't know, what about you? I mean, is that too heavy? What, what are you... It's fairly Lenten, isn't it? Um, how often do we... Are our sins grievous unto us and the burden of them intolerable? I know that it was the Holy Spirit, but the Lord nudges me incessantly. Yeah, okay. Keep in, and I feel like... Um, of course, I didn't always used to be that way, but... I don't, I'm not comfortable with sin. Now, don't test me in this, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with sin. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah. I you said that. You had... <laughs> we couldn't hear her. Oh, she said that, she, um, that the Holy Spirit is nudging her incessantly about, yeah, about her own sin because she's not comfortable with sin. But that's, that's the fruit of righteousness. That's sanctification. We shouldn't be comfortable with our own sin, although I'm not sure we ever really grow in a capacity to see it for what it truly is, which is probably a protection, not just a weakness. Connie? Maybe, maybe um, the sins that are grievous to us and intolerable are the ones we want to admit. Maybe the ones that are grievous unto us are the ones we want to admit. Yes, well, I don't really want to admit many of them, I can tell you, but, um, but yeah, I mean, they're the ones, I, I mean, I think that that is, that makes good sense. I mean, it's the, the ones that are uh, intolerable are the ones that we've come to terms with. And the ones that are, we tolerate are the ones that we haven't come to terms with. In that sense. Um, so are we like the Galilean cities? Are we never satisfied with the prophets that God sends us? Friends, the Word of God, however it is. Because they don't tell us what our itching ears want to hear. And the answer to that question is probably yes. We are like them. So what are we to do? Well, we repent. Right? But what if that's what is repentance? We talked about that a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount, like every week. But what what is um, what is repentance? Turning away. It's turning away, but not just turning away from bad behavior. It's turning away from our reliance on ourselves, right? What if, yeah, running in the opposite direction. That's, that's right. What if we slip back into our old ways then? What happens then? That's right. So how are we, yes, okay, so you quoted the, uh, the pastor from 1 John this morning. We, I think it's 1 John. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, how do we differentiate ourselves from unrepentant Capernaum? That's, 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 I think, a question for us. We're no different than them. It's just what a matter of our heart is. Maybe their hearts were hard. Yeah. We just need to examine our hearts daily to make sure we're not like them. So Ellen said that we need to examine our hearts daily. We are just like them. We can be. 
Yeah, yeah. They, we, I mean, yeah, we're human, and they were human. I mean, that's so. And we have the gospel. We have the word of God. So we're more accountable. So that's I, where Sodom came in. They were not as accountable. They didn't have the word. Right. Sodom wasn't accountable because they didn't have. Well, they were. They were held accountable, but they did. They they didn't have the word. That's where the context that comes in between Capernaum and Sodom. Sodom got judged, but how much more are people that know better and have the word? We don't really know. So. I think I think what Jesus is doing is taking this opportunity with the disciples of John coming and to talk about how people uh, ultimately they just they never are going to like what they hear. I think he's taking us to the brink of religious despair. Because how do we know if we repented enough? How how can we do enough? Um, he and then he once he gets us to the edge of the cliff, he flips he flips it on his ear on, on religion on his ear. Because Jesus is not a prophet like every other prophet. He's a Savior. And you can almost... I mean, it's easy, obviously, to hear this sort of exasperated, sort of hard-hearted prophet, you know, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. But you can almost... Knowing what's coming, knowing the, the next, which is just one of the most amazing passages in my mind in all of Scripture, that you can almost see the twinkle in his eye as he stops his rant. And he begins to pray to the Father. He's plowed the field. And, you know, that's no plow, it's no fun for the field when the, to get plowed, right? I mean, like, you just get but, um, torn up. But that's what prepares the field to produce fruit. So now he's about to water it. And he gives us one of the greatest gifts in his ministry, which is not demand, but invitation. So he... he he says, at that time, so right then, at that time, Jesus declared, so he stops this rant about unrepentant cities. He just can't get it together. He says this. He says, I thank you, Father. This is, the, this is actually the first time in Matthew that we've seen Jesus directly address God as Father. He's called him Father in the, in the Lord's Prayer, but he's, now he's, he, we see God, uh, Jesus speaking to God, the, the Father, calling him Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me. Now he seems to turn back to the people he just plowed. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, so come to me. Gosh, I feel myself getting emotional. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So he... In the face of those who can't be religious enough, and in that effort to be just right, can't be happy with anything that they're told, the ascetic or the liberating truth of Jesus, um, that Jesus says, Thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. In other words, those, those who have dedicated their lives 
to being um, strong. And you reveal them to little children. With little children is disciples, but that's the, it comes by revelation. It comes by those who have nothing to offer except their own need. That's what little children are. So this is your will. And in fact, it wasn't just what kind of will is this? Your gracious will. What is grace? Undeserved favor. This is your will that is characterized by uh, favor that we haven't deserved. Which is the whole point of if you're unrepentant, right? And so, um, and then he has this extraordinary sentence about the, um, the unity between the Son and the Father. So what, what he's about to say to us is actually the will of the Father, not just the graciousness of the Son, because the Father's will is gracious. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So he's so here's the heart of the Father. Now, in Christ, His gracious will, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden by the expectation that you'll never be um, enough, um, burdened down by the cares of life, by um, uh, your young children, by your adult children, by your place of employment, by uh, the news in the world. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, which is to say all of us, and I will give you rest. That, that actual, the maturation of faith is not by achieving, but by receiving. It's not by uh, overcoming but by submitting. It's not by having more, uh, but by having less. Uh, like a child. Do you remember um, in the, that scene in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? Where, because I know you've seen it. In Indiana Jones, his father's just been shot. They're, they're actually, it's filmed at Petra. Um, but it, it doesn't. It's, I don't know that it's supposed to be Petra, but it's it's filmed there. And inside uh, the the room, they, um, the uh, the father has been shot, and now Indiana has to go and he, um, get the chalice of Christ, and he and he uh, comes to this edge of this cliff, and there's the the, the door to the that he's got to get through is on the other side of the chasm, and there's no way to get across. And he says, the righteous, he says the righteous must walk out in faith. It is the only clue. And so he has no idea how to get across and he and takes a step out and then takes a step in faith. And there's a bridge there that he couldn't see. Now, do you remember? I, mean, it's just, I, I, I have no idea why. I mean, I don't think that could actually happen. But anyway, it was... Um, but it's an amazing story. I mean, it's an amazing illustration of, of faith that he could, that he would, for to save his father, he would step out like, like this. And this is really what, what we're called to, um, that, uh, that we step out onto this thing that we cannot see, 
I mean, that's faith. And we find it sure and able to get us to the other side. And, uh, and so it's, uh, what, we're, what saves us is not our strength, not our religiosity, which is good to be. I mean, it's good to have piety and devotions and disciplines. But what saves us is our faith and, um, and the will of God, which is characterized by grace. We're saved by grace through faith. I feel like I've started just rambling. Um, I just, I do love this. But I'll tell you one, one thing I learned about it. I never have known this. I've preached on this passage many, many times. I've never known this. That Jesus is actually in, invoking the wisdom of Sirach. Now, if, if, if you're Protestant, from a Protestant background, you probably don't know what that is. But if you come from a Catholic background... You know that Sirach is one of the uh, apocryphal writings. It's a wisdom writing. It's like Proverbs. It's 51 chapters long. And right at the end of chapter 51, Sirach writes this, and I think his name is actually Jesus Ben Sirach, and he writes this uh, poem uh, to wisdom or about wisdom. And, uh, and he, he offers the yoke of wisdom, and that's really where we begin to, uh, the first place, as I'm told by the scholars, that the first place where we are invited to submit to the yoke of wisdom, the, and the yoke of wisdom, when you put the yoke, I mean, yoke is what an ox carries, it's a burden, right? But when you submit to that, it actually makes an easier life for you. And what Jesus is doing is using that imagery um, that would have been familiar, it, the, the apocryphal writing was, was a religious writing, and it would have been incorporated into the the Jewish teaching, um, but it was not, and I don't know if it was actually considered Scripture or not. We Protestants don't consider it Scripture-inspired like the rest. We consider it holy, but not inspired. Uh, Catholics consider it inspired. It's another sermon. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying is He's not calling us to wisdom. He's saying that He is wisdom. He's not calling us to submit to wisdom's yoke. He is it's his yoke. It's his to offer. And so he is the wisdom of God. And to put our yoke, his yoke upon ourselves is to receive rest. Now I'm going to tell you a story that I've, I've told before. And I think it's just an incredible example and illustration of what the gospel actually can do for us. And that is my friend who um, was incredibly driven all through really his life it, going uh, up through high school he was you know it's uh you know, super high achieving class president state champion swimmer just you know just on every club and just his resume a mile long went to a top tier university graduated in um in three years with his bachelor's degree and took one more year to get a two-year master's degree in education and had the stated goal of being um Something like the uh, the premier nonprofit entrepreneur in all of America, or something like that. I mean, he was gonna like, uh, he, you know, as a Christian, of course, obviously he should be. Uh, it should be nonprofit uh, because you know, but he was gonna be the best one, you know. And so he took this job in the toughest inner city neighborhood in, in Charlotte that he could that he could find um, teaching uh, with uh, Teach for America, I think, and it was. Um, 
And, and you can just imagine, he had kind of had the dreams of he was of being one of those uh, teachers that, that they make movies about because the turnaround teacher, you know, that everybody hates at first and then they took her into love and then they go on to be president or whatever. So uh, he was going to be that teacher. And um, his nervous breakdown started uh, about uh, around November with some short-term memory loss. And, and he's, I mean, he's like 22, 23 years old. Um, and has never had failure in his whole life. And, um, and, but pressed through, tried to press through this short-term memory loss because he was going to be the premier, you know, nonprofit entrepreneur in all of America. And then he lost the ability to speak because his brain just simply unplugged from the stress. And the pressure to perform and his inability to succeed in that environment. And so, of course, he had to quit because he couldn't talk. He can't be a teacher. He can't speak. And so, I mean, frankly, I, this is the story, but I've never, heard of, I've never heard of a case like this. I mean, but his brain just unplugged. And he goes to his pastor when, I guess, I, after a few weeks, he could regain his ability to speak or whatever. And... Um, talked about his pastor. His pastor said words to him that will that changed his life. He said, you don't understand the gospel. And he said, what do you mean? He said, you think the gospel is has these demands. You've got to be the best you can be. He said, the gospel is rest. That's the easy yoke. Um, he, he went back home. He, he was from Alabama. And he was still in, in his sort of crisis moment, even though he could talk. And he got a job with his master's degree. Um, he got a job at Johnny Rockets. <laughs> but couldn't hang as the, uh, as the supervisor. And so he was, ended up, got a demotion at Johnny Rockets working for, for a high schooler uh, who, was, who was his supervisor. <laughs> It was this incredible gospel humiliation. And, um, and he began to get healing and, um, and began to understand that the gospel is rest and that it's not about what he's done for Jesus, but about what Jesus has done for him. So he goes on and now he's in ministry. He's written books. Uh, he is uh, well known, uh, not because he's building a platform, but because he is constantly putting on the yoke uh, of Jesus. Now he has actually also endured great suffering uh, since then. He had a child uh, who died, but um, uh, just completely unexpectedly, it was awful, 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 awful. Um, but he has seen the Lord use him through his brokenness because he's submitted to the yoke, and it's uh, just a wonderful story that his that the gospel is rest. Um, and the gospel, the religion, the relationship with Christ is not religion; it's it's it's, um, it's invitation. Now let Him do the work. Now there is a proper response, and I think people would talk about the gospel's demands, and I would I would rather frame it the gospel's expectations or the fruit of the gospel. I think it should create righteousness in us. I think it should create piety and discipline, and 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 change how we relate to people and change how we relate to God. And yet, um, 
It should be the fruit of grace, uh, not what we give to God in order to receive His favor. Does that make sense? So I don't know if any of that made sense. I um, kind of got off script. Um, but uh, So, all right. Okay, well, Kay approves, so I'm... Amen. All right, yeah, well, it's time to go to church. God bless you all. I'd love to uh, open it up. I just kind of hogged all the time there. Sorry about that. The Lord bless you and keep you.